Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the 1891 Custom House, home of the Key West Art and History Museum. You can take a picture of the building taken at the time period Mario's capturing and then putting it up against Mario's work, and it's side by side. It's incredible the amount of detail that, that Mario recalled. He really is a history teacher and an artist all rolled into one. We'll discuss the history of highlight in Florida, Professional players can throw the pelota upwards of 170, 180 miles an hour. So it really is a fast-paced, interesting game played in these very specific courts called frontons. And talk about food history in Miami. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Orange Brick Custom House is one of the most recognizable buildings in Key West. It's the first historic building that cruise ship passengers docked at Pier B encounter almost as soon as they come ashore. Today, the Custom House is home of the Key West Art and History Museum, where Corey Convertito is curator. This building originally, when it opened in 1891, was our post office. It was the customs office. It was also the federal courthouse building and the lighthouse, the 7th District Lighthouse was stationed in this building. So it, it was a very multi-purpose government building and uh, it functioned that way up until the 1930s because it outgrew itself. Each of the components here needed its own building and so what they did slowly build new facilities for all of those, you know, the post office moved and the, the federal courthouse moved and slowly everybody moved out of here and the Navy took over this building in the 1930s and used it as um, their civil servant office so people, anybody that was civilian Navy can come in here and get their paychecks, file paper work and it sat derelict for a while when the Navy base closed in the 1970s until we were able to uh, get the state of Florida to purchase it and then we rent it from the state of Florida for a lump sum of a dollar a year. Uh, we got that in the 1990s and then undertook a nine-year, nine million dollar restoration of the building which is uh, one of the finest examples of Richardsonian Romanesque architecture anywhere in the country. The orange brick building is three stories tall. It has a wraparound porch with decorative arches and columns. Exhibits inside the museum introduce visitors to early industries in Key West, such as shipwreck salvaging and turtling. Tarpon Springs became known as Florida's sponging capital, but the industry started in Key West. Ybor City became the center for cigar manufacturing, but that too originated in Key West. Cigar manufacturing, you know, has a very um, 
a similar story as the sponging because uh, there, when Spain still had control of Cuba, they were levying huge taxes on the exportation of cigars. And what a lot of Cubans realized quite quickly was that our temperature, our climate in geography is so similar that they were able to start cigar manufacturing uh, places here in Key West. and. Um, it was great because then they didn't have to pay the taxes. But once the Great Depression hit in the 1930s and Key West was had declared itself bankrupt because it was that poor, a lot of those cigar manufacturers and the workers relocated to Ybor City just outside of Tampa. And so I think that's where a lot of the cigar manufacturing, the idea of it and the, um, where it is analogous to, but really it did have its origins here in Key West. Florida, including Key West, became a United States territory in 1821. Exhibits in the Custom House Museum chronicle the military presence on the island. Corey Convertito. The military came to Key West almost instantly. As soon as John Simonton purchased the island of Key West, the Navy quickly realized that this was such an advantageous location. We have a natural deep water port. Uh, the fact that we are on the Florida Strait is a huge benefit, of course, to all shipping. And so using this um, as an area of protection, particularly because we just came out of the um, War of 1812. And so they were so worried about a European attack, uh, particularly um, with the Mississippi River, sort of in the New Orleans area, that they felt that this uh, Key West was almost a choke point um, for people trying to get up into New Orleans. So the Navy came almost immediately and, uh, you know, fate came and it ebbed and flowed. I mean, pardon the pun, I suppose, where the Navy's concerned. Um, but yes, the Civil War, we were one of the busiest ports um, and then it ebbed off until um, the Spanish Civil War, actually the Virginia's affair in the 1870s, Spanish-American War, World War I and II. I mean, it's quite incredible how important and integral Key West is and the Navy is during wartime. So we've always had such a harmonious relationship between the military presence and, and residents here. In 1912, Henry Flagler boldly brought his Florida East Coast Railway to Key West. Maps, artifacts used by passengers, railroad documents, and a simulated rail car are displayed in the Key West Art and History Museum. For the first time in 1912 when Henry Flagler's uh, Overseas Railroad opened, it was the first time that Key West was connected to the mainland. I mean, it had always been by boat that every, all the goods and people moved through here. And now to have this extension cord of sorts to the mainland and scheduled and, and it was affordable, you know, it, it changed the entire dynamic of the Florida Keys because where the Florida Keys were only really populated in certain areas, the railroad having to traverse all of the islands uh, really opened up, uh, you know, there's a big housing boom on different keys, plus the movement of goods. Cigars were leaving here quickly, sponges, turtle, uh, turtle meat, cars can be brought in um, later on when um, they had freight cars. It, you know, it was amazing how much it changed the entire dynamic of the Florida Keys. Photographs at the museum show a train derailed by the 1935 Labor Day hurricane. The powerful storm destroyed the rail link to Key West, but paved the way for automobile travel all the way to the island. The 1935 hurricane destroyed a good portion uh, in the upper keys of Henry Flagler's Overseas Railroad. The car had already come uh, into fashion, and uh, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that part of the Overseas Highway was already open by the time the railroad was destroyed. So you can drive part way, you would have to take a ferry and drive the remainder of the way once you 
got off the ferry to come down to Key West. So I think the Keys were already priming themselves for uh, either a replacement or I guess uh, an alternative to what had been uh, a fantastic invention, you know, this, these wonderful bridges that they had to like get patents on and things, you know, they were already thinking what's next. And even though the railroad had only really been in service, you know, for a little over what, 20 years um, and cars had just come into fashion, it was more economical to do that. So they just decided not to replace the railroad once it was destroyed and, and really use some of Henry Flagler's bridges because they were so well built to build part of the overseas highway on. So they just built the roadbeds right over the top of it because it was such a, an engineering marvel at the time. Ernest Hemingway is the most celebrated resident of Key West. While living there, Hemingway wrote work including the novel To Have and Have Not and some of his most popular short stories like The Snows of Kilimanjaro. A typewriter, personal correspondence, and other items are on display in the Custom House Museum, along with a slightly larger-than-life bronze statue of Hemingway. Corey Convertito. Hemingway was here in the 1930s, so, you know, it's kind of an interesting period that he's here because it is the Depression going on, and so while most of the residents here are suffering and, and struggling to pay bills and deciding whether or not they're going to relocate to other parts of, of the United States or elsewhere, uh, you know, in, in walks Hemingway, a successful writer, and his wife, and, and, you know, a kid and another on the way by the time he gets here, that the residents really don't know what to make of him. And I think a lot of his character and the way that people think about him in the Keys has a lot to do with his timing. You know, he was only here for 10 years, but people talk that he was here, you know, forever. And he's, he's quite the character. He's frequenting bars and restaurants, and he gets um, very friendly with a lot of the locals here, and he enjoys the culture because, of course, he's, he's fishing all the time, and he's able to write, and he's, he's found this quiet workspace to, to be in while he still can enjoy all the pleasures of life. And of course, his wife Pauline, at, that wife at the time, uh, really enjoyed living here as well because she had quite an active social life. And, uh, you know, Key West reveled in the fact that he was here because um, they were going through such a, a drastic, um, you know, poor spell that he gave them hope. I mean, I think people were really attracted to his personality and the, his, cap his financial capabilities while he was here. Playwright Tennessee Williams also called Key West home, best known for plays including The Glass Menagerie, A Streetcar Named Desire, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, a room at the Custom House Museum is dedicated to Tennessee Williams' art, such as drawings and watercolors. For as much as Hemingway was here, I mean, if Hemingway was probably here about nine and a half years and would leave frequently, I think people overlook Tennessee Williams. He is an amazing, you know, American playwright, and he called Key West home for almost 40 years. He bought a house here, he enjoyed the, the solace, he enjoyed the be ability to write. He was a notorious uh, swimmer and he just loved swimming in pools and at the beach and he found that really relaxing before he would write. And he loved to bring his New York Broadway friends to Key West and so because more because of Tennessee Williams really than anybody else, I think Key West opened up as um, a little bit more avant-garde because of the folks that were coming down here, actors, actresses, directors, who's who with money, the financial supporters, and it really became something because of Tennessee Williams and, and Key West. Uh, is, is kind of grateful for that in a way because a lot of our older resorts catered to that crowd 
Um, Tennessee lived on the outer edge of town and he didn't want to be involved necessarily with everything that was going on downtown. So you, you know, you kind of have this, you know, he's, he's an interesting dichotomy of bringing all these celebrities and wanting to show them around town, but absolutely demanding um, quiet and solace when he can. So we're, we're just amazed that he was living here for 40 years. People don't even realize he ever lived here. Where Hemingway, you mentioned his name and people automatically realized he lived here. Also on display at the museum is work by artists sent to Key West by the federal government during the Depression as part of the Works Progress Administration. We had a handful of WP artists that were paid by the government to come to Key West specifically with the purpose of um, painting images. Uh, we had mainly watercolor images of Key West that they were going to use in promotional brochures, calendars, any printed material that they could disseminate to bolster tourism in this town. And what we have here is a collection from those seven artists um, and then actually there some of them decided to stay here so we have some from that time period and later of artists who were here and we have their original artwork because the WPA were part of the founding group of our nonprofit organization here so we we have a lot of their artwork. The Key West Art and History Museum has an extensive collection of work by Cuban-American folk artist Mario Sanchez. He is self-taught. Uh, he started carving wood when he was you know, just a young boy, and when he got married, his mother-in-law encouraged him to take making small, uh, you know, probably about this size fish carvings, and really expanding that to talk about Key West, its architecture, and before he knew it, I think, that he started these large wood-carved panels, and they depict the art and architecture and the characters of the Florida Keys that he remembered growing up with. And so there were people there that were um, that he learned from, that he worked with. Um, he incorporates himself in in some of his pieces. Um, one of the pieces he actually has his father, uh, and this is one of my favorites in particular. His father used to be a reader for the cigar factories here. And what that meant was the cigar rollers would pay uh, a person to read books and newspapers to them while they were working so they had some, you know, just some background noise. And Mario's father was one of those. So he was reading Jules Verne, he would read the Cuban newspaper, and uh, Mario incorporated his father as the reader into one of his wood carvings, and that's something Mario treasured the most. The pieces themselves tell the history of Key West. He had a memory. It was incredible for the, the tiniest details on some of his wood carvings that he remembered. And he was producing these 30, 40, 50 years later. And you can take a picture of the building taken at the time, at the time period Mario's um, capturing and then putting it up against Mario's work and it's side by side it's incredible the amount of detail that that Mario recalled he really is a history teacher and an artist all rolled into one Corey Convertito is curator at the Key West Art and History Museum in the 1891 Custom House This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. 
Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to see web extras for this program, watch episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, find out about upcoming events, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, highlight is a unique sport that has been popular in Florida. What is highlight? Well, highlight is an interesting sport. It's uh, very similar to handball, but it's kind of a more formalized, professional way of playing. The origins of the game actually go back to the Basque region of Spain, the border of uh, France and Spain. And it was originated uh, centuries ago. And, and essentially, it's two teams or, or two players uh, who are on a, a court, formerly called a fronton. And there's a small ball known as a pelota, which is a Spanish word for ball. And it's actually a series of metal wires that are tightly wound together and then covered in goatskin. And it's thrown against three walls. And they throw back and forth, each team throwing the ball to the other team until either an error is made or the, the ball doesn't go across a certain line. So it's a really fast-paced game. In fact, the, the highlight players, the professional players, can throw the pelota upwards of 170, 180 miles an hour. So it really is a fast-paced, uh, interesting game played in these very specific courts called frontons. And the origin, again, comes from Spain was actually brought to the United States and featured late 19th century, early 20th century, and became a, a really popular game after the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. Uh, and the first fronton in, in North America was actually built in St. Louis. It wasn't until a few decades later that the first highlight game, professional highlight game, was brought to Florida, and specifically to Miami. And that was in 1924. The first fronton in Miami was built in 1924, and it caught on immediately. It became a very, very popular sport. And throughout most of the 20th century, it was very, very popular in Florida. Uh, it was, again, a fast-paced game. It was a great spectator sport. People came from all over to come and watch the, the games being played in and specifically in South Florida. Now you have here from the FHS archives some documents and postcards reflecting this highlight culture. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Looking at the postcards first, I actually grabbed three from the FHS postcard collection. We're looking at two showing what was then the one of the largest and most elaborately decorated frontons in the world. And this was the Biscayne fronton, which later became the Miami fronton. And it was very, very popular again in 1920s, 30s, all the way up through the 60s and 70s. In fact, it was known as the Yankee Stadium of High Lie. It was so popular. People came from all over the world to come watch. We also have a postcard showing a, a number of players here and they're holding a handheld device. It's known as a cesta. Now, this is another primary component of the game. Not only are these players throwing the pelota against the wall, but they're using these, what looks like a sickle, and it's actually a, a mesh net that they're, they're hurling the ball at, and it allows them to get these incredible speeds. So here they are in different poses, showing the different angles at which these players catch the pelota and throw it back. We have an inset on one of these other postcards that shows a player kicking off of the wall. So players actually go up the wall and kick off in order to throw the ball. Really kind of an exhilarating and, and interesting sport. Now we're also looking at rule books. Now this is the rules and regulations of highlight as adopted by the Florida State Racing Commission. This is another big component to the popularity and the success of highlight in Florida. 
Highlight became part of a gambling network of Florida casinos, essentially. You could bet on these games. You could bet on which team was going to win. Now, the way that Highlight works, it's kind of a round-robin tournament. So as soon as one of these teams loses a point, they come off of the fronton, another team comes up, and they do this round-robin format until there's a winning team. Well, people can bet, just like horse racing or, or greyhound racing and anything like that, they can bet on which players they think will win. So it became incredibly popular simply for that reason. So because it was so popular, the state, of course, had to come up with rules and regulations. And when you look through this book, this is a 1961 handbook. And I've marked a a couple of pages in particular because the majority of the book deals with the legalities of gambling. Now, I'm sure you can imagine it gets a little bit slippery. You know, there are certainly avenues for illegal, you know, gambling and information to be passed illegally. In fact, here's a law here specifically stating the laws related to transmission of racing information for illegal gambling purposes, because that was very popular. There's a lot of money being made, especially in the heyday in the 1970s and 80s. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars being passed around at these frontons. So they had to come up with rules and then enforce those rules. We have those rule books in both Spanish and English, because remember, this this uh, was a game that originated in Spain, and a lot of the players, even today, are, are from that Basque region. They're Spanish players. There are players who brought it over from Spain to, to Mexico. So we have Latin American players as well. So these rule books were printed in Spanish as well. Now, I'm dating myself here, but I remember back in the 1980s going to the very smoky High Life Fronton in Orlando on 1792 near 436, but it's no longer there. Is High Life still popular in Florida? Well, it's interesting. It seems like for the last few decades, experts have said that, you know, high lie is over. It's dead. However, there are still high lie frontons in Florida. Now, there are only two, one in Dania and one in Miami, that feature high lie games year round. And of course, as I mentioned before, gambling is a major part of the high lie gaming system. And, and that's kind of a double edged sword. It brought a lot of people to the sport. But it also brought with it the public perception of the illegalities and, and kind of the darker side of gambling and, and that side of things. So popularity kind of waned. It really reached a peak in the 1980s and then waned in the late 1980s into the 1990s. There was a player strike in the late 1980s. And we also have to keep in mind that Florida created its own lottery system in the late 1980s. And that, along with the uh, Seminole Hard Rock Casino, the Seminole Indian Reservations, offering different types of gaming Poker games, internet gaming, that sort of thing, have all changed the way that people gamble and also how people enjoy the sport. Now, with that being said, there are a lot of professional players, because remember, at the heart of all this, this is a professional sport. There are a lot of players, retired players, who are interested in maintaining kind of the legitimacy of the sport and trying to separate it, at least from the the gambling aspect. So there are players who are setting up uh, amateur leagues. There are amateur leagues in Tampa, uh, some in, in South Florida as well, that kind of separate themselves from the dimension of gambling that has, I think, tainted the sport over the years. But it's still around. If you're ever interested in seeing one of these games, you can pop in at any day and watch one of these uh, highlight games going on. Okay, well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Kimberly Voss is the author of several books, including The Food Section, Newspaper Women, and The Culinary Community. She discusses food history in Miami with Holly Baker, a public historian at the University of Central Florida. The culinary history of South Florida has always been a reflection of its diverse culture. 
While Florida is geographically very southern, Florida's food culture is different from other southern states. Throughout history, South Florida has experienced different immigration patterns. In the 1800s, Bahamians immigrated to South Florida, followed by Cuban, Haitian, and Jewish communities. Each group that arrived contributed to the vibrant food culture of South Florida. Dr. Kimberly Voss is a food historian and associate professor at the University of Central Florida. I specialize in South Florida. You see such a, a mix of different foods from the various people that settled there. And of course, the fact that Florida went through several flags before it actually was granted statehood. So you see this really fascinating mix, of Jewish communities, Hispanic communities, Spanish influences, and of course, the, the bounty of what we once had here. There's a saying that in Biscayne Bay, you could put a hook out um, without anything on it and catch a fish that were so plentiful at the time. And if you didn't like the fish you caught, you just tossed it back because you knew you could get another one. And so those kinds of things allowed South Florida to exist in a time when often you, the only way you could get to South Florida was by boat. And so it's, it has a very interesting history, both from the people who settled here, but also its natural resources. There's a theory that Miami was kind of settled because there were still orange groves during the, the Great Freeze. And so all of those things kind of create something that you see foods in history here that happened before other parts. You know, we were eating avocados and making guacamole well before other places. Boiled peanuts, key lime pie, the kinds of things that are here. This idea, too, that tourists come to see our food, right, in a different sort of way. And so it has a very interesting food history kind of from that standpoint. You know, I would say Miami in particular as a food city has finally gotten the recognition that really it has deserved over the years. In the early 20th century, Miami gained a reputation as an exotic food destination. People in South Florida had access to foods unheard of in other parts of the country. Orange groves, lime trees, avocados, mangoes in your yard was something that was kind of considered this exotic idea. And, and Florida was good about marketing that, too. Avocado ice cream, for example, was a big thing that was sold to food editors in the 1960s as something that you should do. So it was kind of the difference, you know, that, that was kind of exciting. And, you know, there was a point in time when people got oranges at Christmas as kids. Things that we take for granted as Floridians was something that was very exotic to the rest of the country in that way. Um, you had a, a pretty big influence with people coming from Chicago and New York to winter in Miami, in South Florida. And so you had kind of the mixture of the, some of those cultures in many ways, too. And that's what I think is so interesting about Florida particularly South Florida, is the mix of so many different folks, whether it was Hispanic culture coming from Cuba or simply there were Midwesterners that relocated and brought with them. I mean, there was a point in time when some of the best Jewish delis in the country were in South Florida. There were also a few restaurants that made their mark on South Florida's food history. One establishment called Joe's Stone Crab was established in 1913 by Hungarian-born Joe Weiss, who moved to Miami from New York to alleviate his chronic asthma. Joe's Crabs, of course, is a great story. They were really the first ones to make stone crabs. Stone crabs are not something that people tended to eat very much, particularly when you had so much other seafood that was available. But he figured out the way to prepare it and serve it, and the mustard sauce and the things that kind of made it appealing. And they were the ones that kind of established who was important and who wasn't important in South Florida. Al Capone, for example, would come and eat there under a different name. And he had made friends uh, with Joe's wife to the point that she said that she would kind of protect him if the authorities were looking for him. And in response, he sent her flowers every Mother's Day for the rest of her life. The diverse food culture of South Florida tells the story of immigration. The culinary influence of immigrants from around the world can still be found in home kitchens and in restaurants and delis throughout South Florida today. Dr. Kimberly Voss. I'm glad to see South Florida getting its recognition in the culinary world, both because we have the most amazing ingredients here, but it is a place that people come to celebrate. 
And I'm very appreciative to see that the local cultures are now also getting recognized for their contributions to Miami food. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.